You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Uh, today we're having a conversation with someone else who we've welcomed back to the podcast many times, Dr. Rick Watts, who originally was an aeronautical engineer. He then was a professor at Regent for many, many years in the area of New Testament. And we had um, a fascinating conversation with him about the Greco-Roman world and how Christian it was or wasn't, or actually how kind of as Christianity enters that space, how it changes mostly I mean, we talked mostly about what it meant to be human, the understanding of the human, the Greek understanding of being human and how does a Christian understanding change that. Um, But actually, he then kind of challenged us to think that that maybe actually this century is, the 21st century is more Christian than we might otherwise think. Which is mind-blowing. Like, you just, I mean, we live in a, my understanding of post-Christian society, at least in the West. And so Rick brought some new light and framework around how we understand uh, what a Christian society looks like, like Christianity's impact on the world and why we have some of the many modern things, the sciences and and things that we have today. So it's it's kind of Mm eye-opening. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Rick Watt. Watts, welcome back to the Regent College podcast. Thank you. It's so good to, have, good to hear from you all. It's good to have you back. Okay, Thank so we're going to discuss today the impact that Christianity has had on the world and specifically modernity. But yes. do you want to give us a bit of a glimpse into the ancient world? So those first few centuries, what was antiquity like? You know, were humans given rights and freedoms like we have now? Talk to us about the ancient world, what we need to know. <laughs> good. In three minutes or less. Yeah. Well yes. done. Uh, but just to pick up on that opening question, which is a really good one, uh, were humans given rights and freedoms? Even underneath that are some really important assumptions, like mm. who in fact was a human in the first century? Mm. And, you know, even that question assumes that all humans are due rights and freedoms. No one believed that in antiquity. Right. Because they define humans differently. I don't think anyone even spoke of rights back then. Now, the, the elites mm. had their privileges, but rights, I don't know. So um, what I think I'll do is just to maybe get us in, the glimpse will be really through the lens of some other people. So first of all, Paul Cartledge, who is a former professor of Greek history and chairman of the Faculty of Classics, fellow of Clare College at Cambridge, of course. Uh, he picks up on the notion that for many people, this, this underlying assumption that the modern West shares a particular affinity with the Greeks. Mm. You know, we're a little, we're like them, but just modern versions. And he, among others, has said, actually, no, in various key areas, the Greeks were desperately foreign. Mm -hmm. And to get at that, uh, he talks about alterity or otherness, which when he was writing this book 10 years ago was quite in vogue. And he picks up a group of polarities, five of them, actually. So Greek barbarian, men, women, citizens and aliens, slaves and free, gods and men. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Galatians, in Christ mm-hmm. there's no longer mm-hmm. male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. So when Paul writes that, he's picking up on these set of polarities that were fundamental, according to Cartledge, to Greek self-definition. And, and what's critical about that is that these polarities, they're actually profoundly moral and, as one scholar puts it, death-dealing binaries. Mm. So they're not just talking about opposites. They're actually saying if you're on the other side of the scale, you're actually inferior. So when you say men, women, what you're saying is that women were deficient, malformed males. Mm. Barbarians, right? Uh, They're not just different. They're morally defect. They're effeminate. They're inferior. So that's part of their ancient world, their outlook, which Mm. is very hard for us to get our heads around. Yeah. and then Tom Holland, who's written a number of things on a number of pieces on this, uh, he talks about the way that world behaved was what we would now regard as astonishingly cruel with endemic violence and callousness, but above all, the complete absence of any sense that the poor or the weak might have any value. 
Now, I'll probably leave it at that, but that's mm-hmm. because I think we might discuss or explore mm-hmm. some of these issues in more depth later. Mm-hmm. But that ancient world really is quite foreign from what we know, even just in those terms. And right. I've mostly spoken in terms of morality, which is what your first specific example was about. But we right. can talk about a lot more. Does that help yeah. a little bit? It does, yeah. Yeah. yeah in my, I mean, maybe you want to articulate a little bit more, but my understanding is that if you were in this category, you you were kind of set in it. Like you, there was no sort of like human agency or moving mobility out of, out of it at all. Yeah. And and that's true to some extent. So um, what constantly happens is people have their ways of seeing the world and the reality of the world bumps up against that. So it did happen that sometimes mm. slaves or outsiders became right. fabulously wealthy, mm. but they were never allowed to forget their origins Aristocrats would sometimes become um, terribly poor, lose their status, and in that those kinds of settings, they try to marry off, you know, a daughter to a wealthy slave or a wealthy second-class person mm-hmm. in order to get some, you know, uh, gotcha. money back. You might remember the movie Shakespeare in Love, mm. right? So you've got this lord who's pretty much lost all of his you know financial support so he wants to marry a, the daughter of a wealthy merchant the merchant gets status and he gets money that's that's kind of how it worked back then mm-hmm. so there really wasn't room for people did move up and down but it what that was not really what was supposed to happen yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah does that help you a little bit yeah you- no it does it does and and talking about like humanity or what what constitutes as a human mm. one of the things you talk about in an article uh which uh gets on this notion of christianity's impact on on modernity is you summarize the sociologist rodney stark yeah. uh mm-hmm. in in the early christians impact of the world and you say that uh rodney says that the early christians gave the ancient world its humanity for the oh. first time yeah can you elaborate on this like how did christians give the ancient world its humanity for the first time yeah, um, so just remember when Rodney writes this, he's not a Christian. So he's writing from the outside and he doesn't always get us right, um, which is fine. We often get ourselves wrong as well and we're insiders, so that's okay. Mm. But, um, you know, he would talk about the fractured cities of antiquity, how dangerous they were, how divided they were. And in the middle of that, you get this new community that includes all kinds of people. And it's disrespectful of the male-female, slave-free, Jew-Gentile divisions that were so endemic to Greek understanding. Hmm. It's disrespectful of that. Uh, They begin to show generosity and love toward all. And famously for Rodney Stark, this was during the two great plagues when most people fled their cities, including some Christians, but many Christians stayed behind and cared for people who were not part of their ethnicity or their family. That had a huge impact on folks that were watching. Uh, The place that the early Christians gave to women, and that's based not just on the New Testament, but early burial evidence. Mm. So again, they're disrespective of Cartledge's traditional distinctions. Uh, And it's worth noticing this, I think. So Galerius uh, probably, you know, when he ends that final persecution, what is it, the 5th century, somewhere around there, might be earlier, I think it was 4th century, um, he points out it's Christians were not persecuted because you worship Jesus. If you want to do that, then be a nutter and do so. I mean, Augustus had put up his statues of the great Roman via, right? We get virtue from the word via. So it's essentially masculine, the great Roman males. Augustus has a whole range of these guys and then says, and I have exceeded them all. And no one has any hope of ever going beyond what I've done. I've kind of set the impossible benchmark. Well, if you compare Jesus to the way these Roman veers, you know, operate virtue, Roman virtues, why would you follow this guy? Mm-hmm. It, so he doesn't really rank. Uh, Galerius tells us there are two reasons why Christians get into serious trouble. The first one is we won't participate in the traditional safety rites, which is what ancient worship was. Right? These are traditional safety rites to protect you from the gods. They had to be done at every public event. And for Christians not to do that made them automatically an enemy of their cities. That's the first thing. And then the second thing that touches more on this particular question is Christians invented their own laws. That was absolutely outrageously offensive. Mm. Mm. How dare they disrespect their ancestral trans- uh, traditions? 
by inventing laws for themselves. And some of those laws included the way they treated women. So I've mentioned Cartledge, and I, you know, he I don't think he quite gets Christianity at this point. Well, he's a classicist, so you know, maybe understandable. He points out that um, in the pagan world, women could be priests, but in the Christian world, not. But he seems to be unaware that male-only priesthood is a much later development. It's not a New Testament idea, right? And you might argue that that male-only priesthood actually finds its origins in more conservative Greek people becoming Christians, mm. and they drag that value in. But the other thing to note is that, you know, in, in Greek worship, there were no scriptures. There was no teaching. You know, there was no leadership role. So it's not surprising you can have women doing that because it doesn't have any great significance in shaping the society. But when you get to the New Testament, you'll notice that none of the gifts or ministries are closed to women. Mm. So if you think of the ministries and the gifts or the fruits, none of them are defined by, by sex, right, male or female, by ethnicity or by social status. Mm. And, you know, people argue about this, but Junior, great among the apostles, Phoebe, led the house church in Cancray, probably the first person ever to explain Romans in public. Mm. Priscilla, who's a teacher, Paul allows women to prophesy and pray. That's a hugely significant shift. I'm thinking you sort of, you, you all throughout bits of the of the New Testament in Paul's letters, you do get this sort of like um, this, we, you know, the Jews do this, the Greeks do this, we do this, you know, those kinds of things. Like and there is this, you know, yeah. so 1 Corinthians one twenty three. you know, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews yeah. and foolishness to Greeks. Like what we're doing is not going to not gonna make sense to either kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. But why, why is the cross then so scandalous in terms of the ancient world's impact, or their understanding of humanity and what's that? how does that impact their view and, of And the great thing about that question is, you know, well, lots of us now have been taught in, in mm-hmm. good churches by good preachers who tell us <laughs> what an offence the cross was. Right. And some of us are familiar with that graffiti mm-hmm. where it looks like, a, you know, here's Jesus apparently on a cross with a donkey's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this is really what um, impacted Tom Holland. Uh, I mentioned him a bit earlier. But you know, for him, leadership in the ancient world, maintaining order was about inflicting punishment, not suffering for the world. It was about imposing authority, not washing others' feet. So what happens in Christ crucified is really Paul gets this. This is embodying everything that's weak and foolish. And that's what's so deeply offensive, not only to Galerius, because that's not the ancestral traditions, that's so offensive to Plato, Aristotle, Cicero. Um, They would have had no truck with this. You're meant to focus on the good, the beautiful, and the true. And you'll sometimes hear Christians use that language, and then I find myself thinking, do you really mean that? Mm. Uh, Do you Mm. actually know anything about the crucifixion? Right. (laughs) Because it is profoundly the opposite of all of those things. So in René Girard, his book, I think I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, Um, he helps, I think, explain our current climate. All you have to do in our modern Western world is to establish yourself as the victim And now your claims are unassailable. That's all you have to do, show that you're the victim, and that's it. You've won the argument. Well, he says that really only makes sense from the position of Christ being crucified. Hmm. The Christ appears to be the victim, right? And sometimes Christians fall into that too, though nowhere in the New Testament is Jesus ever presented as a victim. No. There's Hmm. no question he suffered injustice, but this is intentional. He plans to die. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down and I will take it up again. Uh, This is not a victim. This is Yahweh acting in the world to overturn, as Paul recognizes, these two great categories of human wisdom and human power that end up creating the terribly oppressive world that we see in antiquity. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's why the Christ crucified thing is so offensive to the structure of antiquity. That just No, this is not how the world is built. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, w- I want to continue to uh, like talk about how Christians impacted the ancient world but then into modernity. But before that, yeah. I wonder if we could go back a little bit further in <laughs> history <Good> to <laughs> the Old Testament. I know this is a lot, but because... Israel's scriptures. Israel's scriptures, I think. Israel's is scriptures. We had this discussion with Rick That's before, right. Come on. Not the Old Testament. <laughs> I, I keep forgetting that. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. If we could go back to Israel's scriptures, because that was also in in the minds, or at least in the somewhat in the milieu of the culture, yeah. uh, in the first centuries, being uh, 
Jewish. So I wonder how, like, what was the ancient Near East narrative for understanding of of humanity, and then how did this differ from Israel's right. scriptures from from God's God's people as described in Genesis? Well, of course, you know, you can't talk about this without talking about Ian Proven and you know, his, from what I hear of students, you know, his mm. Old Testament Foundations class, you know, just rocks their world, I think, is the expression. Totally, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, all power to Ian. And then um, his, what is it, um, Truly Dangerous Religion? Is that the book Seriously Dangerous Seriously Religion. Seriously Dangerous Religion. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Ian, got that wrong. <laughs> um, so a couple of things that go on, I think, and we need to just take them in order in which they appear. I, the staggering thing is Genesis 1 actually disenchants the cosmos. Now, that's interesting because I do hear some folks these days talk about re-enchanting the cosmos, and I'm thinking, have you actually read Genesis? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, an enchanted cosmos is the last thing you want because it means the creation is divine, and that's one of the points that Cartledge makes. When the Greeks talk about gods versus men, um, the the cosmos is, in fact, divine. Mm. It doesn't house the divine. It is divine. And one of the great things in Genesis is that it says, no, creation is not God. Mm. So for that reason, it's not to be feared, nor is it to be worshipped. Mm. Not to get into deep waters, says he, and then plunges in. <laughs> it's one of my concerns about certain understandings of sacramental ontology. Now, you know, it sounds wonderful. It gets brownie points just for using that phrase, right? I mean, you really sound like a, a master's degree student. Yeah. Um, you know, and it sounds so much like Jesus and Paul, doesn't it? I mean, they talk about that all the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, I think I understand the reasons. People don't want a reductionist, mechanistic world. I get that. So if by sacramental ontology we see sacrament as a gracious gift, then absolutely, right? What does Timothy tell us? He's given us all things richly to enjoy. That's fine. I get that. But then why not use the scriptural language? Creation is actually seen as God's temple. Why not use that? Mm. But part of the problem with the ontology language is it can sometimes mean that creation participates in God's being. And I think that flies thoroughly in the face of Genesis 1. Mm. Uh, Why would they do that? Well, it's no surprise. If Cartage is right, that's exactly what you'd expect to come out of a platonic worldview. Mm. Because that's what the Greeks believed, right? And it just kind of seeps on through. So no, creation is not divine, which means if it's not feared to be feared or worshipped, it's now free to be studied. Mm. That's the first thing, okay? The second thing is creation has its own integrity. Lauren Wilkinson once, you know, tried to be on this, and rightly so. He said, Rick, Genesis does not say that God declared creation good. No, no, no. What it says is he saw that creation Mm. is good. Mm. Creation has its own integrity. Right. Right? Now, that's important for later on in terms of allegorical readings because allegorical readings presuppose creation does not have its own integrity and can't really be trusted, and you've got to get behind it to the truth. Mm. But Mm. that's another issue. Um, Creation's good. Mm. which is just not perfect, and mm. we'll talk about that maybe. That's one of the great things because it then allows room for human agency. A perfect world can't change. If it does, it's no longer perfect. Right. So it's Groundhog Day over and over and over, which might explain why in the Greek world there are never any movements for the betterment of society. Mm. No one had revolutions back then. Uh-huh. You can see why, for some people, Marxism is a Christian heresy because it believes the world can be radically different. Right. No one believed that in antiquity. Right. So by calling creation good, you actually give humans tremendous agency, and that's one of the first things that comes out in Genesis is even people who've rebelled against God create cities, develop metallurgy, animal husbandry, and music. Okay. Now, it's interesting to me. I mean, I'd love CTC, one of my favorite classes to be a part of that, but we didn't really have a serious section on technology. Mm. Right back in Genesis, that's what Mark humans be- human beings out. We create, we make stuff. Okay? So, you know, in this world, there's an openness. Mm-hmm. And I think then at the end of Genesis 1, we'll come back to this, humans are made in God's image, giving us a tremendous sense of agency to reflect God's character in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. So just to summarize this, then, uh, if the world is good, then there is a possibility for change. Edwin Judge uh, once said Christianity unleashed the most extraordinary revolution 
in human intellectual history. And not only that, we have no idea where it will end. Mm. So to pick up on the first Blade Runner movie, Starships on the Shores of Sagittarius. Mm. So this incredible explosion in creativity, innovation, really comes from Genesis and the gospel. Mm. So ironically then, you know, the one thing that Marxism, to pick up that term again, Apple, the woke movement, and Volvo have in common is that the world can be radically different, and that's uniquely a Christian idea. Mm-hmm. All that modern emphasis on innovation, better, we, you know, we talk about uh, region, a school of innovative theology. That word innovative, no one wanted that in antiquity. If it was new, it was wrong. Yeah. Other thing that gets the Christians into trouble. But that's mm-hmm. not the biblical view. So it's pretty amazing. And then human beings play a major role in all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, right, so the whole idea that, like, goodness is better than perfection, or no, yeah, no not yeah. goodness, but, like, the fact that creation is good yeah. is better than it being perfect. Absolutely. Um, and because it allows for change and it allows for things to grow and allows for human agency and the interaction of humans with creation. Is that right? Is that exactly. sort of what you're saying? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and that Christianity then actually allows this opportunity for change, which is flying in the face of yeah. this. These these things don't move. People yeah. are in stratas, stratas, and whatever, and that those things don't. Just move. to flag that, we'll come back to this later. Yeah. The next question is, why did it take so long for that scientific scientific revolution to take root? We'll finish right. off maybe. Yeah. If these yeah. seeds were there already in the first century, and actually in the second millennium BC, what happened? Why did mm-hmm. it take so long? But that's mm-hmm. we'll come to that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then, so you've sort of said in terms of yeah, and we'll go, we'll go into sort of th- those aspects later. So we've talked about kind of the the change of in kind of the understanding of the human and the human's agency and morality. But are there yeah. other ways that society was transformed as well that you would want to share about well, through the I'm, Christian? Yeah, or have you? I, yeah. Again, you know, this is I should just be you know, well, just being upfront about all of this. Uh, a lot of this comes from work of other people like Larry Hurtado, Edwin Judge, Ian yep. Scott, a former Regent student. There's a bunch of them. So I don't want to give people the impression that somehow I'm the big head thinking of all of this stuff. I really am just drawing on a lot of work of other people. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. actually great stuff. So, yes, you've talked about things like uh, how we treat other people. That's usually what most people see as a contribution. So Tom Holland would say that. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to say it's far more than that, right? So... Um, that idea that the world is good and not perfect has enormous implications because if it's mm. not perfect, you can't predict where it's going to go right. simply by thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So this is going to lead into the second idea that um, you learn about the world through your senses and not detached Hellenic rationality in inverted commas. Mm. So they understand that the human mind can only grasp what doesn't change. Yeah, and that sounds mm-hmm. complex, but it's not, right? The word chair, if it keeps changing its meaning, you're going to have to, you won't know what it means. But it's because we have some understanding of chair and that remains constant that we can use language. Right? So that that's fair enough. Language requires that words just don't flop all over the place. Mm. Right? <laughs> There's got to be some grammatical rules, otherwise it's all up in the air. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that leads them to think, well, you know, um, we can only grasp what doesn't change. And furthermore, if anything changes, it can't be true. You know, one plus mm. one must always equal two. Mm. If it keeps changing, then that statement's not true. And then they connect truth with the real. Right. And so if it's not true, it's not real. And that's what Plato's doing when he wants to think about the forms. That's the unchanging reality. Why does that matter? Because the mind can only grasp what doesn't change. Mm. Okay. So you can see why it just takes them down that path. But if you do that, you only have two options, either determinism or everything's up for grabs, everything's random. And that's Stoicism and that's Epicureanism, the two groups that Paul confronts on Mars Hill. Yeah. But all of that has to do with, it's to do with human rationality, which is why the Greeks, they do history, but that's not where you get real truth from. You get real truth from doing philosophy or what Plato would call theology, right? It's the rational science of God what seems reasonable to us. But come to the scriptures, come back to Israel's scriptures. How does Israel learn about Yahweh in the Exodus through their senses? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and that's really interesting because Protagoras, he's already skeptical in regards to the gods. He he thinks that human rationality cannot tell you anything about the gods. We don't know about them. Israel doesn't go down that road. So when you come to meet Yahweh in Israel's scriptures, look at how often seeing and hearing occurs in the book of Exodus. Mm-hmm. It's all sensory language. 
And Yael mm. makes that point in her book, The Role of the Senses. Yeah. Look at the four Gospels. What are they? They're not rational speculations. They don't start with basic principles. Okay, this is what we think we can build from. It's all about what people saw and touched and handled. Starts mm. with senses. He explains why the Epicureans and the Stoics mock Paul. He doesn't start where they start. They don't trust the sensory material, and he does. Mm. So that's the first thing, right? So yeah. you know differently. You can't assume in advance what the world is like. You have to look at it and pay attention. And then you can apply this, you know, to cities. So for the Greeks, the city should represent, or at least for Plato, you know, in his Republic, the ideal city should reflect the hierarchy of reality. You know, Aristotle says humans are animals of the city. Now that's that, you know, man is a political animal. What it really means is humans are animals that live in cities. But the Christian model is very different. Right? So mm -hmm. even though cities were not invented by people who are in relationship with God, nevertheless, they're taken up right, in God's action in the world. But in those cities, it's not the elites who are the head, it's Christ, mm. not the elite families. Right? And then people have different jobs or gifts. Right? Nothing, none of it's got anything to do with whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, slave or free, male or female, or where your family comes from. Mm. Cities are much more about giftedness. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So there's a whole range of areas like that, knowing through the senses what cities should look like, how people should behave um, that flow out of this. And we can come back to some of those in the mm -hmm. questions I yeah. think we're going to be looking at. This is yeah. just, oh, sorry. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to, it's just proving to me that my brain is not at all like a Greek brain. Like, I can't understand. How can I, I could not think that things don't change. Like, I'm, yeah. Like I, just as a human, like I get older, if nothing else, yeah. you know, so that's kind of just seems like I can't yeah. even get yeah. into that mindset that something would, that if it doesn't change, therefore it's true, yeah. it's not at it all. Just, how it I can... just shows how profoundly Christianized our culture is. Right. Mm -hmm. Realize it, right? Right, right. Christian, and mm -hmm. we don't get it. Mm -hmm. Partly, you know, that's it's understandable why, because Christians tend to emphasize how we treat one another, which is really important. Right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But in doing that, we miss the stuff that after 2,000 years is so much a part of our world and mm -hmm. we don't realise. Mm -hmm. yeah. In many respects, you know, we're a bit early to say this, but I think the gospel's already won. Mm -hmm. If you believe the world can change and be better, if you believe you learn about it through your senses, you've got to test your ideas against what you see, da-da-da-da-da, right? If you believe that every human has value, if you believe cities should be dynamic, you can't determine in advance based on race what someone's position will be, uh, if you believe that love and compassion matters, that's fundamentally Christian. Mm. Well, isn't that most of modernity? Isn't that mm. what we say we kind of adhere to, even if we mm. don't always? Mm. So we've actually won. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of staggering. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Are you, are you, I mean, are you saying in the ancient world, like in the f first centuries, like how we study things empirically, even scientifically, like that wasn't, that yeah. wasn't uh, an element or, or that didn't take place in, in their world? Not like we do it. Yeah, so Aristotle's often cited because he paid attention to things, right? But um, well, the thing about Aristotle is um, as he collects stuff, I mean, he, he thought that the genders of sheep were determined by which way the sheep were laying on a hill north or south when they were giving birth, that kind of thing, right? Mm. You know, on the other hand, he really does look at things and tries to work out what's going on. So you want to give him credit for that. Um, and, and not to be snide, I mean, he's a really brilliant guy, and who am I, right? Yeah, that's easy for you know, some little sawn off at the legs guy like me, you know, mm -hmm. having a shot at Aristotle on the basis of other people's wisdom. Don't want to do that, right? No, mm -hmm. amazing guy. But what's interesting in the fifth century is a chap called John Philoponus. He's the first person in antiquity ever to critique Plato and Aristotle. That was not the job of people who are writing philosophical commentaries. Their job was to actually, um, almost like writing a harmony of the Gospels, their job was to harmonize the philosophers, not, not to critique them. And this is a great mystery. People still do not understand why Philoponus was the first one to say Plato was wrong. Hmm. Aristotle would argue, right, in order to explain the origin of movement, heavier objects must fall faster than light ones. You see, it's being driven by rationality. I have to imagine where movement came from. This is the only way it works. But he never wanders up to a cliff and drops them to see. And that's what Philoponus does. 
Mm. He actually demonstrates Aristotle is wrong by experiment. Remarkable. Mm. Absolutely remarkable. And Galileo with the Leaning Tower of Pisa, he's basically pinching Philipponus's work. But Galileo, being the humble chap that he was, never tells anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, it's not just that, because this does feed into why did it take so long? Mm -hmm. Well, Philipponus gets marginalised because he has what's considered uh, an unacceptable view of the Trinity and of Christology. So his writings get banned, right? So you know, he kind of gets lost at that point. Hmm. And there's, this is a huge discussion and so much could be said, but there's a chap called Peter Harrison, and he's argued that one of the major moves was the Reformation's rejection of allegorical interpretation. Do you want to explain what, allegori- do you want to just explain what allegorical interpretation yeah, allegorical is? interpretation yeah. is where you look at something, right, and you say, well, that's what it's saying, but actually what it really means is this. Ah, right? mm-hmm. yep. And so its origins really lie with the Stoics and the Neoplatonists who are reading Homer and Hesiod, and they know Homer and Hesiod can't be telling the truth, but they can't throw them out. So what they do in their reading, Homer, they go, well, I know Homer is talking about this hero, but actually he's talking about this bit of philosophy. Or I know Hesiod's talking about this particular thing. What he's really referring to is this Neoplatonist form, right? So what they're in, what they're actually doing, this is striking. They don't actually learn anything from allegorical reading. Mm-hmm. All they're doing is imposing what they think they already know. Mm. And it's worth doing that. Just you know, even amongst the church fathers, look at those allegorical readings and see if they tell you anything new or they're simply imposing stuff they already know on the top of a text that otherwise creates problems for them. Mm. Mm. It's worth pursuing some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's your mindset and you already believe you can't trust what changes, it's not going to lead you into real truth, okay? Uh, You have to get rid of that, Mm. okay? And that's what the abandonment of allegorical interpretation does. One of the things is you can't trust human reason, And, of course, the Greeks believe that's what we had in common with God, uh, with the gods' reason. Well, the reformers are saying, really? No, 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 we're fallen. Our reason, too, is, you know, suspect. Once you start to do that, you actually have to look at what's there in combination Mm. with rejecting allegorical readings. You have to get rid of all of that. And so I think historians of science have made this point. You had to get rid of Plato and Aristotle before you could develop modern science. Mm. And that feeds into, again, why did it take so long mm. for this shift to have happen? Right? Um, but that's part of the modern science thing, I would argue. Yeah. So you're, you're saying, already paying attention to your senses, but yep. Right. So a big element in in modern science and our understanding today is specifically the Reformation. I mean, how, like, because the incarnation was pretty pivotal in all this, like, yeah. Like Jesus came in body, bodily form, yeah. in human, yeah. Yeah. but the, the the was the early the early church fathers reading that allegorically though. Would you say? Well, um, I think in the sense of looking for a deeper meaning. So there's only one place in the New Testament where Jesus is presented as the Logos. And that's in Genesis in John chapter one. Mm. John mentions it two or three times and drops it forever. And when you get to the end of the gospel, he doesn't say, I've written this, that you might believe Jesus is the Logos. He doesn't say that. Hmm. You get Thomas saying, my Yahweh and my Elohim, or in Greek, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus, um, at the end, John, I write that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah. That's a fundamentally Jewish notion. Hmm. But I think what often happens, you know, when you talk about the incarnation, mm-hmm. uh, what you're after is the Logos. And so much of their thinking is about what lies beyond. Mm-hmm. Really deep water here. But think of all those attempts to try and unpack what's going on in the Trinity, to try and get behind all of this thing. Right? You don't see that in the New Testament. They're not doing any of that kind of thing. We get four Gospels. And we all say, you know, again, this is a bit provocative, right? Oh, we all believe in Scripture, right? Four Gospels. But what do we do? We put that thing through our own mill and come out with our categories, our theological categories as if God didn't get it right the first time. Mm. What if there's something profound about the actual shape of Scripture that connects it to the way the world is? What if it doesn't need to be processed into a series of categories and silos? Mm. What if the whole point is you don't do that? 
So Paul never writes about ecclesiology per se, because it introduces a siloed thinking that designers will now tell you is part of the problem, but not just us. There's uh, uh, Pierre, what's his name? French guy, Dillamou or something? No. Um, oh, yeah, whatever. I'm looking at the time. One of the things he tried to do in his education was to get rid of Aristotle's silos. These 10 categories of thought, you had to get rid of that mm. in order to get a full appreciation of you know, the unity of creation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just, I don't think bringing Aristotle into the Christian world is a good idea because the way he sees it in his categories actually end up denying the kind of integration that we're all looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we can have huge debates about every one of those sentences. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, <laughs> People can email you separately. Already, but, yeah, uh, jump on a Zoom call and have those arguments with you over the Zoom. Is that a <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's yeah, good. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's totally. good. Uh, can we can we just touch on the body specifically yeah. because mm -hmm. that, that I feel yeah. like that um, was a big point. Yeah. But how I guess for antiquity and even in first first few centuries, how was the body viewed? But then how did Christianity impact impact the view of even even bodies? Well, it, it looks like you know, again you could say an awful lot about this, but um, there is a long history of the battle between the body and the soul. It looks like if it doesn't go back to Pythagoras, Pythagoras it goes back to his followers the Pythagoreans, and it's partly informed by the epistemology. Now remember Pythagoras? He's the guy of triangle fame. Mm. The mind can only grasp what, what doesn't change. The only perfect triangles are those that exist in the mind, not in reality. Mm. Right. So there's that kind of two-layered universe, the messiness we experience, and the, the true unchanging triangle, you know, the form, mm. if you like. And then... On top of that, there's, or alongside that, is just Greek, uh, a Greek cultural phenomenon where the word body, soma, sounds like the Greek word for tomb, sama. Hmm. Right, so the body is seen as a tomb from which the eternal soul has to be liberated because only the soul can grasp what doesn't change. The body, on the other hand, as Claire pointed out, you only have to look at yourself in the mirror, right? Exactly. <laughs> you change. <laughs> Well, if you can see if you have that view of the body as not really, if it's a problem for being human, right? then you see why Paul has to address this. In Colossians, he has to do with people who want to abuse the body in order to be more spiritual. Mm -hmm. And then in 1 Corinthians, those who think um, they can indulge it because the body doesn't actually matter. He says, no, no, no. Uh, the Lord is for the body and the body is for the Lord, which, by the way, I think is where uh, Christian sexual imperatives come from. Hmm. got nothing to do with love or commitment or this or that, or I'm feeling attracted, none of that whatsoever. It's grounded in our embodiedness, which hmm. would find its origins in Genesis 1. Well, Genesis 1 tells us everyone's made in God's image, male and female, not just the elites, not just the great ones. So now we're going back to Israel's scriptures, Nick, in terms of that earlier <laughs> question, mm -hmm. you know, Ian's class. Everybody's made in God's image. Right? And that means the slave girl that you think you can have your way with whenever you want. It might include the five-year-old boy that you buy at the slave market for exorbitant amounts in order to become your sexual plaything as well. It also means the disabled people who you cannot buy and force to dance for the general merriment of your guests. Everybody's body matters before God. Mm. That's a staggering view. Mm. Disability studies would make no sense apart from this gospel idea that everyone matters, mm -hmm. everybody's body matters. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you, that's as you do work in the image of God, Catherine uh, McDowell makes this point, Catherine McDowell, that's just confirming what others have noted. You, you can't be in the image without a body. So when Augustine yeah. says it's only in our minds that we image God, he's thinking Greek, he's not listening to Scripture. To be an image means it's got to be three-dimensional. You have to be able to touch it. It's got to be accessible to the senses. Remember yeah. Exodus, what you've seen and heard, the Gospels we've seen and touched and handled. Why does Jesus heal the body? You can't be human apart from a body. Mm -hmm. So instead of forcing apart body, soul, and spirit, I think Paul's trying to bring them together. They're meant mm -hmm. to be integrated. That's the only way you can be human. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that has profound implications. You can see where democracy comes from. You can see why slavery will end up withering on the vine. If you had this view of the body, uh, all these people for whom Christ died, regardless of these Greek polarities, that's going to change your world mm -hmm. radically. Right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. stunning, beautiful, yeah. beautiful stuff. Yeah. And no one got to that by doing philosophy. Right. right. Yeah. That came about by the life of Jesus as people looked, right? They paid attention, which mm-hmm. I would argue is exactly how you do science. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation. But Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know. Share it with them. Share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm-hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. And so, Rick, earlier earlier you said, you know, we've already won. The gospel's already won. We're already, you know, yeah, like Christianity yeah. is, you know, because we've, we've been profoundly shaped. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but, you know, people would say we live in, you know, a post-Christian society or so mm-hmm. much of the West is post-Christian or, you know, yeah. post-post-Christian even. <laughs> but um, do, you think, do you think that's true? Do you think actually maybe the 21st century is maybe the most? Christian well, so it really depends how you define Christianity. Yeah. Right? And if you look at Ephesians, it's to be in Christ, right? That's the only basis on which all of these other divisions are dealt with. So I don't think it's appropriate for a Christian woman to say, you know, a person to say as a woman of colour, you're appealing to two categories that no longer define us. Now, I'm not picking on them, but we have all of our own categories. Like, you know, maybe Western males think somehow we're superior to others just implicitly. No, no, that all has to go. There's only in Christ, right? That's what defines us, not these other things. Mm. So we don't do woke. We don't do racism because we just don't think in those categories. Everyone's made in God's image. That should be the thing that guides us. So to that extent, yes, you could say to the extent that we've lost that and we're no longer focusing on Christ, then we're in all kinds of trouble, I think. Mm. And that's partly because we've been given such incredible freedoms. The world is good, not perfect. It can change. That's an extraordinary freedom. Mm. Everyone has value. Everyone has significance, but only because we're made in God's image. But if you say that to people without one family in God's image, you end up with a whole lot of different tribes fighting one another. Mm. So to that extent, we are facing, I think, serious problems because we're not listening to the one person who gave us all of these freedoms that we now enjoy. Mm -hmm. But in terms of those actual freedoms, possibility of change. You learn through your senses. Cities should be dynamic. Everybody matters. Love and compassion are critical. Mm. That's defining the modern world. So Mm -hmm. I was recently in a very large Asian country giving a lecture to a group of masters and PhD students. And at one point I said to them, uh, okay, we've had a week looking at the biblical worldview and you know the Ming dynasty better than I do and you know modern China. So which one does modern China most look like, the Ming dynasty or the biblical worldview? And one of the PhD students just looked at me astonished and he said, China's basically Christian. Yes, it is. If you believe in change, that you learn about the world through senses, that cities are meant to be dynamic, those are fundamentally Christian ideas. So in that sense, we've already won. Hmm. We're in trouble because we're no longer following the one who gave us that freedom that might sound familiar. You might have heard that story about Israel in Israel scriptures. <laughs> so it's not a new story in that respect. So you're you, what you, what you're saying is modernity operates with biblical understanding, yeah. but doesn't recognize the yeah. source yeah. of in which we're operating. And none of that came through philosophy. Hmm. 
we know where philosophy leads us, either stoic determinism or Epicurean, everything's just random. Now, we learned this stuff because of what people saw and heard and were taught in Scripture. Hmm. I wonder, Rick, do you think that there's, in in not recognizing and not being in Christ and not being that, our, the soul identity in which mm-hmm. we see and live, do you think that can move culture into, into a place that doesn't look like God's kingdom, into into a place that doesn't recognize people as made in God's image into the breaking down of the social fabric as I mean, I, I don't, I'm just wondering, like, do you think that mm. in not recognizing that, does that yeah. move us away from, or, or do you think that these, these things within society that we have yeah. foundationally still stand? I in? think, I think that can happen. If it, if it all becomes my truth, you're in trouble. Hmm. Right. Um, because the thing about trusting your senses is the world is out there and it's not me. Mm. I have to look at it. Now, engineers know you can't do that. So I don't know how far that's going to get, but I think it explains this increasing divide between humanities and the hard sciences. Mm. I design aircraft, and I know that designing good aircraft has nothing to do with my identity or my truth. Right? There's something external to me that I have to abide by. If I don't, my only two choices are regular and crispy fried. Mm-hmm. Right? It's going to end up in a fiery disaster. There are some things you simply have to abide by. So I think mm. we've got attention in a culture that has this tremendous emphasis on technology. Mm. And at the same time, you know, I'm made in the image of God, but if I'm not careful, um, that means I can be autonomous. And so what do I do when I bump up against another auton- autonomous human being? Mm. Uh, a friend of mine was giving a lecture at the University of uh, Western Australia years and years ago, and he was talking about some of these issues. And a young woman, you know, put her hand up in question time. And it sounds like you're talking about absolutes, right? There's got to be some kind of foundation here. You know, I don't know if she's skeptical of that. And he said, well, okay, well, look, forgive me, but let me use this as an example. Suppose it's 10 o'clock at night, you've left the library, you're walking home, right, to your dorm, right, books in hand, it's dark, coming towards you in the other direction is a guy who's so much stronger. You see yourself as this liberated woman enjoying her freedom, he sees you as a sexual object and he rapes you. What do you do with that? And she burst into tears and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't. And she said, no, no, that's exactly what's happened to me and I don't know what to do with it. Hmm. And that, that's the incredible thing about the gospel. We're all made in the image of God, right? So we do have this distinctiveness, but we find our common humanness in Christ in whom the fullness of, you know, the Godhead dwells bodily. Mm-hmm. It's a tremendous gift. Mm. But it really is only in the Christian West. And it's not because we're West, it's because we're Christian, that you find these ideas that every human being matters. Mm-hmm. That's Rodney Stark's point. Mm-hmm. These Christians are taking care of people who aren't part of their family or their tribe. It's yeah. a beautiful thing. Yeah. Can I ask one more question? You may, yeah. <laughs> um Particularities. Yep. How do we understand particularities? So, yeah, yep. uh, we're not a homogenous. You know, people change, people are different, all of that. So, yeah. in terms of like the kind of the being in Christ, could sound like a kind of like a homogenizing thing, which it is, is an equalizing and an, you know that I, I get that. Yeah. But but how do we understand then the particularities of being black or Asian or white or Australian okay. or American? Well, remember, or remember too that Christ is particular. There's yeah, not right. Differences. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I would even say to Christians, be careful about using the word divine because it can imply there's a category of divine. There isn't. There's Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And what I love about the scriptures is, is the emphasis is so much on particularity. That's why mm, it's. Yeah. Yeah. So a little comment, if I can quickly say this. Uh, the end of the uh, 19th century, early end of the 20th, they're having a big debate about the relationship between science and philosophy and history. And Collingwood makes this wonderful observation, and he says, you know, look, um, what philosophy and science have in common is trying to make sense out of a changeful world. So Greek philosophy, of course, that's what philosophy is, strictly speaking. It's a Greek thing, right? They did it by getting out of the world and looking for that which doesn't change. Aristotle wanted to say, no, those forms are actually embedded in the world, but they're still looking for the stuff that doesn't change. 
Science, he says, does the same thing. I'm right? oh, sorry, when the Greeks do that, you go to universals. That's what the forms are all about. Justice, right? they're all universal ideas. Uh, science is doing the same thing, except it's not doing metaphysics. It doesn't believe in that anymore. It says, no, what we're looking for is the stuff that doesn't change within the change, hence the mm. laws of science. Mm. But Collingwood's wonderful insight was to say the problem with both of those views, picking up on your question, Claire, mm. is that they cannot deal with a particular. Yeah. So science can tell you why Estella's J, what you know, why Estella's J, um, or where you might expect to find it, you know, in what kinds of trees, what kind of nests, the rough size of the bird. You can describe all of that stuff, uh, the general categories. It can never tell you why this particular Estella's J landed in your front lawn at 9:07 a.m. on the 7th of July, 2021. It can never deal with a particular. Why not? Because it's looking for what doesn't change. And the particular is about what's different in all of us. Yeah. And his point was that's what history does. History is able to talk about the particular and neither science nor philosophy can. Mm. And both of them end up losing our humanity because in the process of reducing everything to universals, you have to lose our particularity. We become mm. machines. Mm -hmm. He saw that as one of the great threats of those two ways of knowing. He said they have a place, they have a role, but only history can talk about particular individuals. Now, what does scripture look most like? Philosophy, science, or history? Mm. History. history. Right? It is about yep. that particularity. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I might have dark skin, but biblically that does not define me. Mm. Yeah. What's meant to define me is reflecting the character of God mm -hmm. in Christ. Mm -hmm. Right? So I can have a different style of music, but that should not define me. What defines me now are the things that Paul talks about, you know, loving one another, the fruits of the Spirit are, you know them, right? This is what defines us. It doesn't matter what color skin I have. And I can have those different cultural things, and that's fine, but they're not definitive of whom I should be. Mm -hmm. If they are, I end up playing myself off against someone else. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's okay to enjoy the distinctives, but they should yeah. be defining. The defining, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much, go. Rick. Thanks. So good to be with you. Oh, that's all right. And uh, no, it's good giving us giving us more questions and some answers. And I know and this is trivial questions. in one sense, but um, as I said to someone on a flight, I was uh, coming back from the UK and was talking to a guy who was the head of the Australian Broadcasting Commission office in Washington DC, and he was just lamenting how his world had changed and he wasn't sure about bringing up kids in the world anymore. And we got talking about this, right? And uh, forgive me, but at the end of it, he just said to me, um, wow, he said, I just, I don't know what to say. I've never had a 15-minute conversation that so turned my head upside down. Hmm. But at the end of it, I could say, well, you see, if this is all true, you really can thank Jesus for your iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. And that's not trivial. That's not no, it. totally. You really can, right? Wow. Yeah, totally. So you better use it well, okay? Exactly. Right. Location exactly. meaning no iPhones out when you're at the table. You talk to the image you've got in front of you, not the whole screen, okay? <laughs> there you exactly. go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right, Rick. Thanks so much for your time. So That's good to be with you. Okay. Love you guys. Take care. All yeah, you best. too. Thanks Bye. You, Rick. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.